Are you guys ready for a good fight tonight? Well, in case you're, you came here looking for a fight, you know, the, the blood and guts of theological disputes, uh, you came to the wrong place. Because let me just say from right off the top, uh, tonight is not a night about fighting. It's not about hatred. It's not about saying someone's a Christian and someone else is not. But what tonight is about, it's about discussing important issues about how we understand the Bible and how we view God. Clear enough? Good. Yeah. I remember when I was in college, uh, I wrote a paper uh, discussing uh, a lot of the issues that we're going to be talking about here tonight. And at the time, there was only probably a handful of people in, in my circle of friends that were really interested in these issues. But one of the hats I wear is I do college ministry here at Southland. And I've noticed in the past couple of years, just a growing number of students who are raising the questions and, and the topics that we're going to be talking about. And I think the issue of Calvinism, rightly or wrongly, is something I hear a lot of people talking about. It's even coming through in, in our Christian culture in a lot of subtle ways. Uh, our Christian music, I know probably a lot of you guys are familiar with the band Kademan's Call. Sure, yeah. I mean, it, it expressed in their beliefs about, uh, about believing in, uh, in Calvinism. Uh, some other people, the Passion Movement, uh, Louis Giglio. I know I just talked to Louis a couple weeks ago in a, in a personal conversation. He told me, he said, you know, every time that we do anything with passion, John Piper will be there. And if you've ever heard John Piper speak, as Louis Giglio told me, yeah. If you've ever heard uh, John Piper speak, you know this guy is committed. Louis, Louis made the comment that uh, John Piper was a 19-point Calvinist looking for six more points. But I know you guys didn't come here tonight to hear me talk because I, I don't, I, even though I do certainly have my own views on this subject, uh, you know, I'm still just uh, learning this stuff like you guys here tonight. So if you guys wouldn't mind putting your hands together, welcome to the stage our participants for tonight. Over here on my right, I have uh, two distinguished professors from Asbury Theological Seminary. I take it a few of you all drove up Harrisburg Road tonight. Yeah. But uh, right here on my immediate right is Dr. Jerry Walls. Uh, Dr. Walls is a professor of philosophy at Asbury. And then to his right is Dr. Joe Donchel, who is, who is professor of New Testament studies, is that correct, at the Asbury Theological Seminary. So these are our Wesleyan Arminian scholars we've got here tonight. Over here on my left, uh, we've got a couple of fine scholars from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. those guys had home court here, but uh, you, guys, you guys got some crowd here. Uh, but to my immediate left here is Dr. Uh, Tom Schreiner. Uh, Dr. Schreiner is professor of New Testament studies at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. 
And then to his left is Dr. Bruce Ware. And Dr. Ware is professor of theology at uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So give a warm welcome to all our participants again. We are pleased to participate in this debate tonight. I would like to begin by saying that our view of God's comprehensive sovereignty is driven by the scriptures. We are not attempting to establish a speculative philosophical system tonight, but to present what the scriptures actually teach. We believe our philosophical worldview must submit to and be ordered by the scriptures. I want to add as an introductory word that we do not believe, I think Brian already said this, but we do not believe the Arminian view is heretical. We believe a view can be incorrect and even unhelpful and still fall within the pale of Christian orthodoxy. So please understand we are not impugning the motives, the character, or the Christian status of Jerry Walls and Joe Dongell. Let me begin my biblical presentation by saying that we believe that the scriptures teach that all things come from God's hand, both good and evil, and yet God is not morally responsible for the evil which occurs, nor is the significance of human agency for the actions performed diminished. So now I want to look at the scriptures quickly. Do the scriptures teach God's comprehensive sovereignty? Yes, Ephesians 1.11. In him, that is Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things means all things here. We, this is confirmed by Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. God, in all wisdom and insight, made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The all things that are united in Christ include the things on heaven and, th and the things on earth. So I think that helps us see that the all things in verse 11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will, includes absolutely everything. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. The days of our individual lives were formed and ordained by God before we were born. Proverbs 16:33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The lot, we, we would say today, the dice. The way the dice lands is from the Lord, which is a seemingly random event. Yes, an insignificant event. And yet, where the dice lands, where the lot falls, is ultimately due to God. It's from the Lord. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it, that is the Lord, 
wherever he will. The will of kings is ultimately turned by the sovereignty of God. Yes, kings do what they want to do. And yet God is also working out his plan. How that can be so, I will leave to Bruce Ware to explain further. God is sovereign over international events. Daniel 4, 34 and 35. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In saying the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, he does not mean that God doesn't care for the inhabitants of the earth. He does not mean that God doesn't care for human beings. He means that no human being can thwart the will of God. No one on earth or among the host of heaven can stay his will. Ultimately, God's will is accomplished. There are a number of spectrum texts in the Bible. By spectrum texts, I mean texts that speak of the beginning and the end. And therefore, also everything in between, the beginning and the end and all that is in between such as God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and, and he's Lord over all in between as well. Here's one of these texts. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and I create darkness. Light and darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. Shalom, well-being, raw calamity, yes, evil, the hard things that happen. I am the Lord who does all these things. From the shalom, the good thing, the well-being, to the calamity, the evil things that happen. The Lord makes these things and creates them, this text says. Another spectrum text, Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. That's the spectrum, isn't it? I give life and I kill. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. How many people would never, if they were writing the scriptures themselves, say about God, I kill. I wound. Well, That's what the text says. I kill, I wound. I submit to you that many, I include myself here, would never, ever have written that. But there it is. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37 and 38. 
who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come same point I, I imagine that all of us in here would say yes good comes from God but bad good and bad the whole spectrum yeah, I know again that raises questions in your minds and again Dr. Ware is going to handle those <laughs> I'm very glad that he's here tonight The reason we believe in the gospel, here's my next point, the reason we believe in the gospel is not ultimately due to our free choice or our free will, but God's choice of us. Still, we do not deny the responsibility of human beings to choose, to believe, and to repent. Peter on the day of Pentecost does not preach like this. Consider whether you are elect. No, he preaches this way. Repent and believe. That is also how Bruce Ware and I believe you should preach the gospel. Repent and believe. Come to me. All those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest repent and believe choose Joshua says in 24 chapter 24 doesn't he choose to follow the Lord but the ultimate reason we believe is due to God's gracious election and choice of us yes we believe but the reason we believe is God's gracious work in our lives a few texts Acts 13:48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. It does not say all those who believed were appointed to eternal life. That's reversing the wording of the text. It says those who were appointed believed. First comes the appointment, then comes the belief. Yes, they truly believed, but they believed because God had appointed them to believe. A few texts from John's Gospel. John chapter 6, verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Notice we're talking about third singulars here. Not groups, individuals. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. I think you'd agree from the parallelism there. Coming and believing are two different terms for the same thing. If you come to me, you won't be hungry. If you believe in me, you won't be thirsty. They're just two different metaphors for the same thing for belief. Coming is another way of speaking of believing. So two verses later, John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. We have seen that coming is another word for believe. So I can paraphrase this verse like this. All that the Father gives me will believe in me. That, 
that isn't all people, is it? Not all people believe in Jesus. Some do not believe in Jesus. So we conclude that only some are given by the Father to the Son. Not all, because not all come to Jesus. Not all believe in Jesus. Only some are given by the Father to the Son. And those who are given come. They believe. Why do they believe and why do they come? Because they were given. John 6, very similarly. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. No one is able to come. No one has the ability to come. Those who are dead in trespasses and sins cannot come unless they're drawn irresistibly, not against their will, but by persuading the will to the Father. There is another text that figures in this debate, John 12, 32, Jesus says, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all to myself. I, I don't have time to defend this now, but I'm happy to do it in the question and answer. I think the all there doesn't mean all without exception, but all without distinction, both Jews and Gentiles. Finally, Paul, a couple texts from Paul, Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, set his covenantal affection upon, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those whom he called are justified. Calling there does not mean those whom he invited to believe are justified because all those who are called, all those who are called are justified. So ju calling doesn't mean invite. It is an effectual call. Not all those who are invited believe and are justified. Only those who believe are justified. And therefore, I conclude that calling is effectual, that calling creates faith. It is like the calling of Lazarus out of the tomb by Jesus. Jesus' calling created life. Lazarus come forth, and the calling gave him life. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise, not many influential, not many noble. God chose the foolish to shame the wise. God chose the weak. God chose the lowly things. Calling is explained in terms of choosing. Why? So that no one may be boast before God. It, verse 30, it is because of God that we are in Christ Jesus, so that the one who boasts will boast in the Lord. That's why this matters to me and to Bruce Ware. We believe that all the credit, all the glory, all the honor for our choosing of God goes to God. We wouldn't have chosen him. We wouldn't have chosen him apart from his grace. His glory alone is responsible for our belief. Time. So we praise him. Thank you. <laughs>
But we all strongly agree at the outset that the Bible describes the sinful human condition far more bleakly than is typically taught in evangelical circles. Too often it is imagined that the sinner's problem is merely one of guilt for sin and liability to future judgment. But the Bible insists that the sinful condition includes rebellion against God, bondage to sin, and insensitivity to spiritual truth. Those who are dead in their sins are truly unable to recognize truth, let alone respond in repentance and faith to the gospel. We therefore wholeheartedly agree with Calvinists that for sinners to be saved, God must take a strong and loving initiative to invade human hearts through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Yet we differ when describing this divine work leading toward salvation. For Calvinists, this work is restricted to those unconditionally chosen by God, and this work is always effective in producing repentance and faith. For Arminians, the divine work is universal in its scope, dynamically creating within all persons at various times and in various ways the possibility, but not the necessity, of responding positively to light. This Arminian view is usually called prevenient grace. It is fair for Calvinists to ask just where the Bible teaches that salvation has been made possible for all. In our judgment, prevenient grace stands as a solid inference resting upon several biblical pillars. The first pillar is the one we share in common with our Calvinist brothers and sisters, as we have just mentioned, that for anyone to be saved, the Holy Spirit must act to create spiritual insight and bring conviction for sin. The second pillar is the biblical teaching of God's universal love and universal saving intention, as described, for example, in 1 Timothy 2.4. God desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, if God desires to save everyone, and if the convicting ministry of the Spirit is necessary before anyone can believe, then we confidently conclude that God will indeed visit every person and will create that degree of illumination and conviction needed to make faith possible. The third pillar consists of those biblical passages telling of successful human resistance to the wooing of the Holy Spirit. Stephen, for example, described certain Jews as those who always resist the Holy Spirit, implying that even among them, God had been at work, but had been rejected. In other words, the eternally lost will have rejected God's invitation not because they were unable to accept it, but because they freely rejected it in spite of the Spirit's work making faith possible. Calvinists like our friend Tom Schreiner have acknowledged that the doctrine of prevenient grace can boast an attractive, coherent, and even impeccable logic, and that it would solve the vexing problem of how God is both loving and just. Their chief objection seems to be that the Bible does not explicitly teach a doctrine of prevenient grace. This strikes us as strange since Calvinists no doubt employ inferences and deductions to build their own doctrinal system. If every doctrine not explicitly taught by scripture is to be abandoned, then all theological systems would be greatly reduced and such important doctrines as the Trinity, which is nowhere explicitly named or neatly packaged in the Bible, would be in jeopardy. In short, we judge that it is perfectly appropriate to draw reasonable inferences from the teaching of Scripture, especially when they offer promise of affirming and correlating the great truths of the gospel. But some fear that a human faith which God himself did not 
cause would turn salvation by grace into salvation by the human act of faith. But Paul in Romans 4 makes it clear that when Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. By its very nature, faith creates no merit, makes no payment, has no leverage over God, in no way threatens the gracious nature of salvation. Faith does not save, not even partially. God alone saves upon the condition of human faith, a condition God himself has set and graciously makes possible. We believe this is not because we have been infected with humanism or liberalism or rationalism or modern democratic individualism, but because we find it strongly implied by the teaching of scripture itself. Calvinists will ask why the Arminian God, who loves and wants to save everybody, doesn't just go ahead and cause everybody to believe. Here we need to travel back to creation and ask what sort of human creatures God might have made. Those who deny that God could have created human beings with libertarian freedom for responding to God end up, we believe, limiting God's options and thereby threaten God's own sovereign freedom through the back door. But if the possibility is granted that a sovereign God could have created a world of free creatures, we find the whole sweep of the biblical story falling into place with greater coherency and consistency than under the Calvinist alternative. And if this is so, then we conclude that the love of God, that the love God wants from us, is freely chosen love and not love caused by God himself. For those who fear that this view produces a weak God who helplessly waits for us, I point to the lament of God as recorded in Isaiah 65, 2, and repeated by Paul in Romans 11:21. All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. This picture of God in his unfil unfulfilled longing actually sounds quite like the sort of God some find utterly unthinkable. But at this point, we must dare to hear the whole message of scripture, no matter how jarring, unsettling, or counterintuitive it might seem. We fear that a zeal to protect God from every hint of vulnerability actually overruns God's own design and generates a theology so dominated by divine power that the reality of divine condescension at Bethlehem and Calvary is ignored. If the sovereign God has chosen to wait for us to respond to him, then we judge he has every right to do so. Though many find that the Arminian view explains much of the Bible well, we still must ask whether or not the Bible teaches unconditional election. A number of qualified scholars have concluded that the Bible does not. We must be content to merely sketch our thoughts about a few of the more important passages. First, Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, describes believers as, as having been chosen and predestined before the foundation of the world. But as the context here makes clear, these marvelous blessings and privileges come to us not from Christ, but in Christ. Only as we are in him do we share in his chosenness, his predestination, his death, his resurrection, and his session in heavenly places. Christ is the elect one, and we stand in his election when we are baptized into, faith, into him by faith. 
This, the famous sequence in Romans 8, 29 and 30 reveals that those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. Often called the golden chain, Calvinists believe it proves un unconditional election at the outset and the absolute certainty of an individual's salvation throughout. We decline to accept this interpretation for these reasons. One, Paul's stern warnings to believers about the possibility of falling from grace make little sense if our salvation is an, is an absolute ironclad inevitability. Calvinist explanations of these warnings remain unconvincing. Two, the passage does not identify the basis for God's choice and predestination. It remains entirely possible that God foresaw the faith of future believers and predestined them on that basis. This holds true even if foreknowing actually means forechoosing and, and pre-loving. If I had defined foreknowledge, I could choose to set my affections upon my future wife long before I actually met her based upon my knowledge that she would accept my proposal for marriage. I'm glad she did. She's right there somewhere. <laughs> Number three, the entire sequence of events, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified, is expressed in the past tense as if viewed from the end point of history. This has prompted British scholar James Dunn to conclude that Paul is not inviting reflection on the classic problems of determinism and free will, or thinking in terms of a decree which excludes some or includes others. His thought is simply, according to Dunn, that from the perspective of the end, it will be evident that history has been the stage for the unfolding of God's original purpose in creation. In light of all of this, it appears that God has absolutely predetermined the sequence of events which, are, which will be experienced by all who are in Christ as they remain in him. Romans 9 usually captures most attention in these discussions, since it appears to teach that God saves or damns individuals according to his own mysterious will, utterly apart from anything they might think or do or believe. I too would conclude the same. If we were to read certain verses of Romans 9 in isolation from the context of chapters 9 through 11. In that larger context, we find two clues helping us track the argument in these chapters. First, in, verse, in chapter 11:32, Paul writes, at the climax of this argument, for God has consigned all men to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all men. In other words, God designs to extend his mercy just as widely as the infection of sin has spread, and that is universally. Two, the second clue. Romans 9 through 11 must be understood in the light of the kickoff paragraph, chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, where Paul identifies the issue he is treating as the unbelief of his kinsmen, the Jews, most of whom are lost and headed for destruction. We must not lose sight of the fact that Paul's anguish over these unbelieving Jews drives his argument. Now we are set up to make sense of the contested passages in Romans 9. Who are those who are complaining that God is unfair? Who are saying that God cannot harden whom he wills? 
who are offended that they may have been shaped into a vessel slated for destruction? The answer here is crucial. They are the unbelieving Jews who have imagined, as Paul explained earlier in chapters 2 and 3, that their genetic connection to Abraham or their mere possession of the law or even their obedience to the law would guarantee their salvation. This is surely why, this is surely the sense in which we must take Paul's claim that salvation is not by works, right there in those verses, or anything done, good or bad, or even by willing or exertion. And in, and in denying that willing has anything to do with salvation, Paul is not targeting Christian faith, but rather the striving to fulfill the law within the false confidence in genetic connection to Abraham. What about those hardened by God and those vessels slated for destruction? Again, the larger context of chapters 9 through 11 drives us to see the unbelieving Jews as the hardened vessels ready to be destroyed. But Paul clearly does not view their hardness as an irreversible decree of a fixed plan of God. Since Paul himself swells with the hope that even these unbelieving Jews will come to believe and be grafted back into the tree of salvation. Accordingly, we do not find unconditional election taught in Romans 9 through 11, but quite the opposite. We read of salvation graciously given by God solely on the condition of faith. Paul warns his Christian readers, quote, Behold the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they too, unbelieving Jews, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Chapter 11, verses 22 and 23. We commend to you, then, what we judge to be a solidly biblical view of salvation, in which all sinners are enabled by the gracious work of the Spirit to believe and to be saved by the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, I want to begin um, by making clear what I think is the real issue that stands between uh, Calvin's, Calvinists and Wesleyans tonight. The real issue is God's character. Now the issue is not biblical authority, we agree on that. The issue is not whether God is fully sovereign, we agree on that. The real issue is this, whether God truly loves all the world and does what he can to promote the well-being of all the children he has created. Now in order to understand this deeper issue, however, it's absolutely essential that we be clear on something else, namely how we understand the nature of freedom and responsibility. Now if you don't get this, you're going to talk in circles, and, and I, I'm sure many of you have debated this you know, issue many times, and you find yourself saying, I just can't get anywhere. We can't seem to understand what the other side is saying. Probably what is going on is people are talking with two different concepts of freedom. You've got to get this, okay? 
So the first concept is this, libertarian freedom. It's the view that I think is, is probably intuitive, that most of you probably hold, and it's this. A free action is one that is not determined by prior causes and conditions. Now, free actions are chosen for reasons, and reasons explain actions, but they do not determine them. So the essence of who we are in our freedom is in our rationality, our ability to think, reflect, deliberate, evaluate, and then freely decide. Now over against the libertarian view is the compatibilist view. The compatibilist told that an agent is free so long as the action is not coerced, so long as the agent does what he wants to do, okay, even if he is determined. Now, the point is this. You do what you want to do, but you have been caused to have the desires you have. You've been caused to want what you want. You can't want anything else. You can't desire anything else. You've been caused to have those wants and desires, but you still do what and exactly what you want to do, but you can't do otherwise. That's important to understand. Now, here's what you gotta, you gotta get. Wesleyans hold a libertarian view of freedom. Calvinists, if they are consistent, must hold a compatibilist understanding. And the reason they have to hold a compatibilist understanding is because they believe God has determined all things. And that two-volume work you see right over there, a couple of the writers in that, and this is edited by uh, uh, Tom and Bruce, uh, make this point very clearly. So I'm not trying to hoist something on Calvinists they disagree with. Consistent Calvinists recognize they've got to be compatibilists. Okay? Now, here's the next point I want to make. There's some really important and interesting implications that follow from compatibilism. Number one, people are responsible and blameworthy for their actions even though they cannot possibly do otherwise. Now get that. Now this probably goes against your intuitions, most of you. It goes against our whole legal system. I mean, we take it that if someone couldn't help what they did, if there were mitigating circumstances, that decreases, we think, responsibility and blame. Calvinists hold that people do, cannot do otherwise, cannot possibly do otherwise, but they're still responsible for what they do because they do what they want to do, remember. Well, they can't want otherwise, but they still do what they want to do. Now, secondly, if freedom and determinism are compatible in this manner, now get this, God can determine all persons to do whatever he wants without in any way infringing on their freedom or overriding it. God could, if he wanted, determine all persons always to do only good things and they would do it freely according to the compatibilist definition. God could determine all persons freely to believe and be saved and worship and glorify and praise his name if he wanted to, but he doesn't want to. He could do that without infringing on their freedom because freedom and determinism, again, are compatible. Now, next point I want to make, and this is big. A consistent Calvinist has to keep this squarely in mind and not flinch from the implications. Now often, you know, when Calvinists begin to discuss sin, unbelief, evil, and the like, they start slipping around and slide into libertarian views of freedom. They say things that don't make sense on a compatibilist reading of things. It happens, I've seen this happen dozens of times in the stuff I've read. Now, uh, let, let me give you an example of a consistent Calvinist. And, and I read this years ago, and it made quite an impression on me. Uh, and it still impresses me, and this is by John Piper, who Brian was talking about just a minute ago. Um, in this article, Dr. Piper is asking the question, how does a sovereign God love? And in this article, he has a moving passage in which he contemplates the question of whether his own two sons are elect or not. 
And he says how he goes into their bedroom each night and prays for them and hopes they will join him in Christian service and Christian ministry. But after stating this, that he hopes and prays their elect, he concludes the article with these words. This is Calvinist's Calvinism. This is beautiful. I mean, it really is in one sense. And here's what he writes. But I am not ignorant that God may not have chosen my sons for his sons. And though I think I would give my life for their salvation, if they should be lost to me, I would not rail against the Almighty. He is God. I am but a man. The potter has absolute rights over the clay. Mine is to bow before his unimpeachable character and believe that the judge of all the earth has ever and always will do right. Now this is clear-eyed, principled Calvinism at its best. This is not unconditional election as an abstract principle. This is not talking about some tribe halfway around the world that is not elect because God did not send the gospel to them, as Piper argues in some of his other books. That's not that. This is his own two sons. And if God wants to choose not to save them, Piper says he's God. I will adore him. Now, I admire Piper for this at one level, but at a deeper level, I think this passage represents as profound a misunderstanding of God as I can possibly imagine. In fact, I would suggest that this is an excellent test case for all of you who are still trying to decide whether you're Calvinist or not. You know, if you're a Wesleyan thinking of moving over, you know? <laughs> if you're a Calvinist trying to decide whether you should uh, continue to be a Calvinist or if you're a Baptist in between and you don't know what you are, this is a great test case for you, okay? Does this resonate? This is the question, Al. Does this resonate with your own careful reading of Scripture? Is the God who is revealed most clearly in Jesus a God who would pass over some of his fallen children and leave them in their sins even though he could save them with their freedom intact? Now you answer that question. Is the character of God as revealed in Jesus glorified? Is that character shown forth in its clearest and most beautiful light by the claim that God withholds his grace from some of his children and chooses to glorify himself in their eternal damnation? That's the question. Now I want you to think about what Jesus says in Luke chapter 15. He says there's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Jesus tells us God is like a shepherd who has the 99 and he's not content with those. He goes out and looks for that one more that is lost. He doesn't say, pass over that one. Leave him in the wilderness, wandering and lost. Not, not, he doesn't leave the one. Consider what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Now, can you imagine Jesus saying this? If the only thing that prevented him from gathering the chicks under his wings was his own choice to withhold from them the grace with which they would gladly have come under his wings. Ask yourself that question. Piper asked the question, how does a sovereign God love? I think he's got the question reversed. The question should be, how would a God of perfect love express his sovereignty? That's the question you should be asking. 
Now, if you think Piper's passage about his sons is not a good picture of the way a loving God would express his sovereignty, if this seems profoundly at odds with what you believe a loving God would do, then you don't want to be a Calvinist, whatever you think. Now, interestingly, Piper says some other things which show he has some, some other instincts that are really quite at odd with, odds with some of his Calvinistic comments. Listen to this passage, which he says is perhaps the single most important sentence in his theology. And I love this. I, I've never read a passage from a Calvinist that I like better than what I'm about to read. You listen to this. This is awesome. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And he continues, if it is true, then it becomes plain why God is loving when he seeks to exalt his glory in my life. For that would mean that he would seek to maximize my satisfaction in him since he is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. You see what he's saying? God's glory is not at odds with our satisfaction. The opposite. The more we are satisfied, the more God's love shapes us, transforms us, gives us joy and happiness, the more God is glorified. Now ask the question, if this is so, why does God need to damn? Why does he need to pass over some of his rebellion children to glorify himself? Why does he need to do that? If he is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Now, interestingly, many Calvinists themselves admit that they're troubled by these implications. Um, they admit that it's hard to believe, but they say, well, the Bible teaches it, so we've got to go with it, even though many of them admit that they themselves are troubled by the moral implications of their views. But again, what you often see happen is that they slide themselves into inconsistency with respect to the way they view freedom, and they start talking like libertarians, they start talking like Arminians, they start talking like people who believe in prevenient grace the way we believe it. Listen to this passage from Calvin, who I suppose is as good a Calvinist as anybody. Now listen to this, except maybe Piper. Uh, now listen. All right, now listen. There is the general call by which God invites all people equally to himself through the outward preaching of the word, even those to whom he holds it out as a savor of death and as the occasion of severer condemnation. The other kind of call is special, which for the most part he gives to the believers alone, which by the inward illumination of his spirit, he causes the preached word to dwell in their hearts. So you see what he's saying? Some people hear the words, preach to them, but God doesn't cause it to dwell in their hearts. They get the general call, but not the special call. The special call is reserved for those that are elect, and God causes the preached word to dwell in their hearts. But now listen to this incredible sentence. Yet sometimes he also causes those whom he illumines only for a time to partake of it. And then he justly forsakes them on account of their ungratefulness and then strikes them with even greater blindness. Now, explain that to me on Calvinist terms. If God wanted to, he could make these people see. His grace is irresistible, after all. If he wants to make anybody willing to believe, he makes them willing to believe. But here's people, he gives them grace, and they don't respond with gratitude, so what does he do? 
He strikes them with even greater blindness to punish them for not responding. That sounds like they could have responded, doesn't it? And should have responded, doesn't it? But oh, wait a minute, on Calvinist premises, they can't respond. All right, let me move quickly to my last, last point then. I'm going to have to go ahead. I don't have time for this one. I will get a last one. Calvinists often, in light of this, not only are inconsistent, but they're evasive and misleading in what they say. For instance, given what they believe about election, one real problem is this. How do they preach the gospel to people? Because they don't believe God loves everybody. They don't. Not in any meaningful sense of the word. Uh, D.A. Carson, a prominent Calvinist New Testament scholar, says he is often asked in Calvinist circles, do you tell the unconverted that God loves them? It's a question. It's a good question Calvinists have to ask because it's not obvious that they should, what they should say to that. His answer, of course I tell them God loves them. Now on the face of it, I like his answer, but listen quickly. Here's what he says. There are three different ways God loves people. First, he loves people by giving them material blessings. Secondly, he loves them by letting the gospel go out to them. And thirdly, he loves people with electing love. Now, here's the point. Carson doesn't know who are the recipients of electing love. He doesn't have a clue any more than I do, or you. Now, can he honestly say with a good conscience, of course God loves you, if all he knows is God is giving you material blessings? If all he knows is God lets the gospel be preached to you, even though you can't possibly respond to it? Jesus said one time, what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Let me paraphrase that question. How does the love of God profit a man, even if God gives him the whole world in terms of material blessings, but doesn't give him the grace he needs to save his eternal soul? How does the love of God profit him? In short, I would say this, there's no meaningful sense in which Calvinists can honestly preach the good news. And for Baptists, this is a problem. I mean, Baptists like to preach the gospel. Right? They cannot honestly say, God loves all of you in any sense that counts in the long run. They don't know that. Material blessings are trivial in light of the question of eternal salvation or damnation. So in short, I would conclude in this way. Time. Calvinist... Do I have 20 seconds? Time. Okay. <laughs>
that libertarians or Arminians typically point to the great difficulties, philosophical difficulties, that there are with the compatibilist notion of freedom, and yet they seldom recognize that their own view of freedom is in fact fraught with philosophical problems. Now let me try to explain this really quickly to you. Libertarian freedom is, is freedom, freedom is understood as this, an action is free if when that action is performed, all things being just what they are, the agent could have done otherwise. Is that an acceptable definition? When an action, well, I want to make sure. When an action is performed, all things being just what they are, the agent could have done otherwise. So, so long as you agree with me that the reason you got at that state is because you made choices that were not Absolutely. Determined. So, undetermined choices. So, so you make unde undetermined choices to get there. So let's take an action that is performed in libertarian freedom. All things being just what they are, you could have done otherwise. Well, here's the problem with this. And that is when an action is performed then, there is no reason that is choice specific, action specific, for why that particular choice, why that particular action was done. And, and so if you ask the question, why did you pull the trigger? So a murder is committed. Why did you pull the trigger? Well, any reason you give for why the trigger is pulled or any set of reasons you give for why the trigger is pulled is the identical reason or set of reasons for why if you hadn't pulled the trigger, you didn't pull the trigger. So how is that an explanation for how an action is performed? This will not hold up in a court of law. People look for motives. They look for the reason why actions are performed. So just to go on record here, don't think that the compatibilist view is the only one that faces philosophical difficulties. The libertarian view faces an enormous problem of being re reducible to arbitrary choice. Secondly, the reason Calvinists I, I, I don't like to even call myself a Calvinist. I honestly believe I'm trying to follow the Bible. And in following the Bible, I happen to line up pretty close to where Calvin did. Not on everything. I don't agree with him on everything. But I try to follow the Bible. And in, in looking at the Bible seriously, I honestly believe text after text after text demands compatibilist freedom. That is, that freedom by which a human being, a person, does what he most wants to do chooses out of the strongest desire of his heart, is compatible with God's oversight and control, his ordination in a way that God's purposes are accomplished through the actions and choices of the human who does what he wants to do. Look with me at some passages. Genesis 45, verses 4 through 8. You remember that Joseph comes to his brothers and finally reveals himself to them. And uh, he, he says to them, now don't be grieved in verse 5, Genesis 45, verse 5. Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here into Egypt. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Now notice it doesn't say, don't be grieved that you sold me here because God used what you did and turned it into something good. That's not what it says. Don't make it say something it doesn't say. It says, don't be grieved because you sold me here, for God sent me. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve life for your remnant in the earth. Verse 8, now therefore, now here's the kicker, now therefore it was not you who sent me here, but God who sent me here. Now if you ask Joseph the question, do you really believe that your brothers put you in that pit, sold you to the Midianites, sent you down into Egypt? Did they really do that? Did they do what they wanted to do? What do you suppose he would answer? 
Absolutely yes. Now, Joseph tells us, behind all that, I now understand God was at work from the beginning, so much so that the ultimate reason I'm here is not because of what my brothers did. It's because God sent me here through what my brothers did. In chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers who are afraid he's going to take revenge on them, retaliation, now that his father has passed away. And Joseph says to them, as for you, the brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So here you see the asymmetrical relationship of the same activity. If you ask the question, who sent Joseph to Egypt? How do you answer that question biblically? Who sent Joseph to Egypt? Don't you have to say, the brothers did, God did, it's got to be a both-and answer, but the both-and answer does not indicate that the moral framework in each of those choices that come together is identical. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Now, another great text that shows this is Acts 2.23. In Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, he says concerning Christ, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. Now again, think of this question. Think how important it is how you answer the question, how did Jesus get nailed to the cross? Don't you have to say wicked men put him there? Wicked men, men who are morally responsible for what they did, men who have committed the greatest moral atrocity in the history of the world. There's nothing greater than the, the sin of nailing the Son of God to the cross. Is that the full answer to the question? How did Christ get put on that cross? Absolutely not. Oh my goodness, Isaiah 53 verse 10, where, where God says, It pleased the Lord to crush him. Can you imagine such, such a statement? God put him there. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Who put Jesus on that cross? God did. Wicked men did. The two have to go together. Acts 4, where Peter explains this further, he says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod... Now listen, four categories of people. This is Acts 4, verses 27 and 28. There were gathered together Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, plural, and the peoples of Israel, plural, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. How can you possibly avoid the conclusion what they did, what God did, goes together? The wicked action they do is the very same action God does in his love and grace put Christ on the cross. Well, there are other passages. How much time do we have left? Uh, you've got seven minutes. Seven minutes. Isaiah 10. This is a, an incredible text. Verses 5 through 19, which starts out. We won't be able to go through all of this by any means, but look at the whole passage yourself. Isaiah 10, verse 5. Woe to you, Assyria. Now, what does woe mean? It doesn't mean stop a horse, you know. It's not that kind of woe. Woe to you, Assyria, means... You are in trouble, Assyria. What you have done is wrong. Woe to you, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation. I commission it against the people of my fury to trample underfoot, to capture, to seize, to plunder. 
Do you understand what this text is saying? God raised up Assyria to be his tool of judgment against his own people. And yet, as Assyria performs the very thing God commissioned them to do, bring judgment against his people by trampling them in, them in the streets, they did precisely what God raised them up to do. He then says to them, Yet you do not so intend in your heart, that is, you don't see yourself as an instrument of God, nor do you plan in your heart, for your purpose, rather, is to destroy, to cut off many nations. You have an arrogant heart, Assyria, and so you will be judged. So here you have it again. Who brought this devastation upon Israel? How do you answer that question? Well, Assyria did. Surely Assyria, this proud, arrogant people, did this. And that's true, but it is not the whole answer. God raised up that wicked nation and used that wicked people to accomplish his preordained purposes. They did what he designed for them to do and holds them accountable because of the proud hearts that they have. 2 Peter 1, this is the last passage I'll use and then we'll move on to the next part. 2 Peter 1, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Do you all hold to biblical inspiration, do you? Do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Do you believe that every word of it, every grammatical construction, every syntactical arrangement in the original text, as written by the apostles and prophets under inspiration, is the Word of God? Ask yourself the question, how could this have happened if those writers had libertarian freedom? If for every word they wrote, they could have written otherwise, and God cannot control what they write. Every grammatical construction could have been otherwise, and God cannot control what they write. I, I tell you, if, if they had libertarian freedom, and this is the word of God, God got very lucky. That's the only thing I can conclude. Very, very lucky. Think of it, every word, every grammatical construction. It's, it's an amazing thing, this inspired scripture. Okay, now, in the moments I have left, which is? Uh, three and a half. Oh, my. A comment on some issues. The problem of evil. Goodness, what can I do in three and a half minutes? The problem of evil. The Arminian position claims to solve this problem at least in ways that are far superior to the Calvinist, the Arminian position, however, re has this problem that is seldom recognized, and that is that when God creates this world, he knows everything that is going to happen, and he doesn't have to create. He knows all the evil that will be. He knows all the people who will suffer eternally in hell, and, he, and yet he freely chooses to create. Those of you who are Arminian, do you understand that's part of your view? So your God, the Arminian God, is one who willingly, knowingly chooses to create a world in which people suffer eternally, if you hold to a traditional doctrine of hell, or at least undergo all of the torment in this life that happens. Now, so the Calvinist is not unique in having this problem. However, it is more severe for the Calvinist in this sense that we hold to a compatibilist view of freedom. And so the way a Calvinist handles the problem of evil is by an appeal, first of all, to a version of the free will defense in which we acknowledge that people do things freely, that is, according to what they most want to do, and God is able to regulate that, but he regulates what we do for good or evil in an asymmetrical way. He regulates good by, incent uh, by incentives, 
by, by working within us to do good. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is the one at work in us. So good, God actively participates in prompting and moving the good things, and he gets all the glory. For evil that happens, God works in a passive way in which he allows these things, passive allowance of evil to take place, which he has absolute control over. Yes, it's true God could step in and intervene and cause, turn the heart of the person a different way and chooses not to. That's absolutely true. But what that indicates is God is in control of these things and hence allows them for purposes, which brings about the second point. The greater good defense is another part of the arsenal for the Calvinist answer to the problem of evil. Obviously, God allows this for purposes that, that uh, so far exceed what we can comprehend in this life, the best language that the Bible gives to it is for the glory of God. Romans 9, verses 22 to 24 is one of the best places to go to see this statement of God's glory manifest. What about prayer and evangelism? Some people say, well, there's no point to it, to prayer and evangelism, but the point is this. God could evangelize the world without us. He doesn't need our prayers to help him out. He invites us to participate in his work. We become, by his choice, means to accomplish his ends. So prayer and evangelism are, in a Calvinist understanding, not only important but crucial and necessary because they are, by God's design, the means by which he will fulfill his purposes. It's a marvelous thing to think that God is sovereign over all and we are responsible. It's humbling to know this, that God's purposes cannot be thwarted and that his will, not yours or mine, is ultimate. And it's strengthening to know that God has created, called, and equipped us to carry out the good works that he's designed for us to do, all to the glory of his name. Time. Thank you very much. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to discuss this. I think we already see that, you know, there's some tensions between us, theologically at least. I'm just going to say some things quickly, especially about what Joe talked about. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all to be saved. I don't think that we can conclude from that clearly that God visits each person with provenient grace. I agree with Joe that it is right to draw inferences from biblical texts so that we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. But the question is, and what I doubt, is whether it is a valid inference to argue from the Scripture that provenient grace is taught. So I believe in inferences. But the question is, does Scripture clearly teach, in, by way of inference and implication, as it does the Trinity, does it clearly teach the doctrine of provenient grace? I would say no. Acts 7.53, yes, they resisted the Holy Spirit. We do not deny as Calvinists that people resist and say no. What we argue is that those whom God has chosen, those whom God has effectually called, he overcomes their resistance and draws them to himself. I want to say something about Romans 10.21. God spreads out his hands all day to the a disobedient people, inviting them to come. That's in Romans 9 through 11, 
which I think is our strong chapters on God's sovereignty. So we have to acknowledge that there is a tension, a biblical tension, between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. I feel, I don't have time to develop this now, maybe we can work this out in questions, but I think that uh, Jerry Walls just focuses on one side of that tension and pushes it too far. But we have to account for all the biblical texts on both sides. My argument is Calvinism would do that in a more satisfying way. I want to make one more comment and give this to Dr. Ware. Ephesians 1.4 does not say that God elected Christ. It says God chose us in Christ. The object of the choosing in that text is us as believers, not Christ. So in my opinion, Joe does not interpret that text correctly. Given our time, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Ware. With, Roman, with, with Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself to the praise of the glory of His grace which He has freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Now, you know what? I absolutely agree that the love of God for His own is a unique, special, specific, saving love that is not true for all the rest of the world. That's not to say that God doesn't love the world in some sense. It is to say that He loves His own in a special sense. And Arminians uh, fail to take seriously the Bible's teaching on the special selective love of God through the scriptures. Another example of this is in Isaiah 43 where God makes clear that his favor is shown to his own people. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. In other words, I destroyed them in order to benefit you, is what he says. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Now my friends, this is the Bible. This is what God says concerning his own work. We, we can rationalize. We, we can try to speculate in ways that seem more acceptable to us. But honestly, before God and in clear conscience, I hold a view that I believe is what the Bible teaches. Yes, God has a special, selective love for His own. And this is what the Bible teaches. Uh, that we agree that God absolutely walks through history and can uh, change events and change human hearts, can guide the hearts of kings, can cause nations to rise and fall, can bend people to do his will in any way he wishes to. He does this all throughout history, and the Bible is filled with this, and we accept it gladly, we affirm it. Um, God can do this whether with a person's will or by creating a desire in them to do what he wants them to do. All of that we affirm and agree with, with, uh, with, with zeal. The question that we think is in focus, though, is what about the matter of salvation? That's a more specific issue. The question isn't how God operates throughout history and with the nations. The question is, what does God do with regard to causing human beings individually to believe 
or to, ref or to withhold from individuals the grace that would make it possible for them to believe. And so I would just affirm probably three quarters and agree warmly with you of God's power to work throughout human history. He did it. I believe he did it quite clearly in bringing Jesus to the cross, just as you said, and within the scripture. And I've had my Bible here, I'd say, I too believe in the Bible. I too believe in the Bible. <laughs> um, what, what they said about the difference, the asymmetrical control as uh, God, his action with respect to evil as opposed to good things, this is a classic example of Calvin starting to slide into libertarian freedom and uh, try to sneak stuff past you if you're not paying attention. So, did God merely permit these evil men to crucify Jesus? Did he merely permit the brothers of Joseph to do what they did? Did he somehow foresee it and just let it happen? Is that what you're saying? Or, or do you think God determined it more specifically? So uh, uh, this, this permission language I find puzzling. I mean, if God controls the, 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 where a die falls, and yet he just permits human actions of certain kinds, I, I find that puzzling. So I'm not, not sure what you mean by that. Now, with respect to, uh, with respect to philosophical problems and libertarian freedom, um, I, I don't see any problem here at all comparable to the problems in incompatibilism. Uh, for instance, we believe God freely created the world. Didn't have to create. Could have created. Chose to. Didn't have to. Classic case of a libertarian choice. Could have created a different world. Didn't have to create this one. Classic case of a libertarian choice. Was it merely arbitrary, the reason the world God created? No. I mean, he had reasons for what he did, but, uh, you know, he wasn't determined by those reasons. He could have chosen a different world. Uh, Calvinist, I take it, assumed that God could have chosen to save different people than he did. On, on your view of election, he could have such, you know, chose to, you know, they, they often say there's nothing arbitrary about God's election, so he had reasons, as they see it, for choosing some and not others. So given all these ex examples of, of choices that all of us, I take it, would affirm as meaningful libertarian free choices, I find puzzling, to say the least, the notion that uh, such choices are incoherent. So here's, here's my question for you, and I don't know if it's both of you answer or one of you, but you, you can certainly decide that. How does God succeed in accomplishing his ultimate purposes when free creatures may resist his will ultimately? For example, what, what if, what if the vast majority of the people of the world reject his gracious wooings to come to salvation and in fact are damned eternally? Will God win? Uh, yes, absolutely. God, God is going to win. There's no question whatever about that fact. God's love, the measure of God's love is not our response. That's not the measure of his love. Um, the damned glorify God in this way. What they demonstrate is that we cannot be happy, we cannot be fulfilled, we cannot live meaningful lives apart from God. So they indirectly, in a left-handed way, glorify God by trying to live lives on their own. And what they inevitably succeed in doing every time is showing you can't do it without God. That's how they glorify God. So God's going to be glorified. God's ultimate purpose is simply to manifest his nature of love. He pours out his love on all creatures, does everything he can short of overriding freedom to elicit a free response from people. It doesn't matter whether it's one or, or 99%. doesn't matter. The proportion of those who respond is not the reflection or measure of God's love. The measure of God's love is shown in the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Our response is not the measure of his love. So yes, is God going to succeed? Absolutely. 
no problem. Uh, Dr. Walls is going to pose a question from the Wesleyan perspective to the um, council. You, you indicated that you don't think God loves everybody the same way. Um, would you frankly, forthrightly tell us how you think God loves all people and whether you think this really meshes with the amazing, astounding uh, good news of the gospel? Well, this, I mean, this is a very, very good question. I mean, this is an honest question and one that is right to ask a Calvinist. I, I often, when I teach on these things, ask questions like this, volunteer them, saying, you know, Calvinists ought to come clean on some of the things they actually believe but sometimes don't say. And it is true that the special, particular, electing love of God for his own means he does not love all the people in the world in the same way. So how does he love all the other people in the world? Well, I think I, I would, even though you don't find it satisfactory, he, he shows his love for them in uh, providing for them breath this very moment. Life and breath and all things are a gift from God. What comes to my mind is uh, Jonathan Edwards' sermon of sinners in the hands of an angry God. The fact is, they're still in his hands this day. They are given life and breath this day that they don't deserve. They deserve eternal condemnation right now. And God is allowing them ongoing life. Uh, God provides for them many, many benefits in life. But, but he, here, here is such a key thing to keep in mind. God does not owe any one of us, elect or non-elect, any good thing. We, we deserve, all of us deserve, by our guilt in Adam, eternal condemnation. For God to grant any favor for us, breath for a moment, is grace. Added to that is grace to be saved. And God goes on record, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. You may not like it. In fact, that's why Paul raises the question in Romans 9. Do we find fault with God? The question relates to what seems to be this disparity. God shows favor to Jacob and not to Esau. And God says, before the two were born, before either had done anything good or bad, that my choice might stand. It was said to her, the younger will serve the older. Therefore, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. So God as God declares his godness in part in being the one who chooses those upon whom he has mercy and those upon whom he passes over. And that which is another way to say hardens and so they are lost. This is part of what it is to be God. Now I think of John Piper and his, the illustration with his two sons. My two, I have two girls. Uh, they are by God's grace saved and I'm so grateful about that. But when, when Jerry says, does this resonate with you that you could say of your own children, if God's will is that they're not elect, that you can accept that and honor and glorify God, my heart says yes. My heart says yes. And the reason it says yes is because I believe Scripture's teaching that God is good, He is righteous in all of His ways, He is holy, His ways are perfect, and He is the one who has designed this world in which there are chosen and passed over people. God chose that. Who am I to question the ways of the Lord? And so yes, in my heart of hearts, as John Piper has said, in his heart of hearts, we accept this. We bow before a greater mind and will than our own. 
and accept God as God. Really quick, this is just something I've been struggling with. I'm asking this from a totally objective viewpoint. Uh, I am dead positive that there is God. I can't explain why I believe that there's God. But in, in that same way, I'm positive that I'm saved. From a Calvinist viewpoint, can I have that assurance of salvation? Because with what they said, it's God could, God could give me his grace just for a little bit and then take it away and forsake me. Is there any assurance of salvation? If I, I didn't hear every word you said, but if I understood you to say, as a Calvinist, can you be sure that you're saved? Yeah, yeah. My, my argument would be, yes, you can have assurance of salvation, because my understanding is it's the Calvinist view that teaches that those who are chosen by God and who trust in God will be preserved by God. It is the Arminian view, consistently worked out, that teaches that just as you choose to belong to God, so you can choose to opt out and be damned. So it is the Arminian view, per John Wesley and others, who argue you can be saved and then you can forsake that salvation and end up uh, being damned and going to hell. But in the Calvinist view, those whom God has chosen, whom he has brought to faith, he promises to sustain their faith until the end. And, and we need to be careful here. What Calvinists argue is we don't have assurance of salvation merely by having a moment of belief, but the reality and legitimacy of that salvation is evidenced by a change in our life. So John can say, by this we know, we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. So there is evidence of God's work in our lives. As in Philippians chapter 1, Paul believes these people are saved because they're participating with him in the gospel, and so he says, the God who began a good work in you will complete it, not might complete it, but will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That gives great confidence and great assurance. Okay, we are going to allow for each question that's asked of the other side a, a chance for a one-minute cap or any relevant thoughts on the question asked. This is actually one of the things I wanted to talk about but didn't have time to. And, and my response would be absolutely there is not the same uh, basis for certainty in Calvinism as there is in Wesleyanism for this reason. You cannot be sure God loves you, bottom line. So in both sides, Christians are sometimes depressed, struggle, have doubts about their salvation. In Calvinism, you go to your pastor. Can the pastor say with absolute certainty, yes, God loves you? The, Cal the pastor doesn't know that because you might be the victim of the false hope. You might be one of those that God has given partial grace. So on Calvinist premises, you can't be sure of that. Uh, our favorite Calvinist band, Cademan's Call, sometimes I'm, af I'm afraid, I'm not chosen, you've hardened my heart like Pharaoh. That would explain why life is so hard for me. And you look in classic Calvinist sources and you see again and again and again, Calvinists struggling with precisely this fear. And if Calvinists preached election more today, more forthrightly, I think more Calvinists would struggle with this fear. Okay, you've got a question for Dr. Walls and Dr. Uh, actually, the question can be addressed uh, to both sides because uh, Scripture, going back to Moses' encount, uh, encounter with God, the I am that I am, the beginning and the, and the end, Alpha and Omega, uh, Paul's reference in 1 Corinthians 13, that for now we see through a mirror dimly, that there are dimensions that we don't understand because of our finite existence here. And yet, if we truly believe in this infinite God that we claim we believe in, for centuries upon centuries at the expense of division and death in the Church of Jesus Christ, we have insisted on describing and defining this God and how he works with uh, us. And Hold on. I need to hear a question. Okay, coming. the question's coming. Hold on. In finite terms, 
My question is this: Is it not possible that both of you are describing shadows, as it were, of a single entity that's beyond our dimension or comprehension, part of this infinite God that, that we claim to believe in? I think I'm following your question. If I'm not, you can flag me down. All right. Um, yes, I think I think in all in all honesty, we all have to admit that we're doing our best to understand the Word of God. And being fallible human beings, we might be wrong. I might be wrong. And I know this is really hard to imagine, but Jerry Walls might be wrong. <laughs> I like this verse. Let me read this verse to you from Deuteronomy 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. I think there is a vastness to God that we cannot comprehend, perhaps never will comprehend, even in heaven. But God has revealed some things that I suspect he wants us to comprehend. And I think that we're all trying to comprehend what God has revealed. And indeed, we are both bumping up against the mystery from time to time. Each of us has problems in our construals and in attempts to understand scripture. So I think I can answer for both of us in that regard, although I wouldn't want to take it away from you guys. God, this is, this is God, God is infinite, and yes, we are finite. And so our attempts at best, we have to realize our partial understandings. But let's not make the mistake of thinking because God is infinite and we're finite that we dare not try to do this because God has given us his revelation. So we dare not cop out how irresponsible it would be. Suppose your, your lover wrote you a letter and you said, oh my goodness, this love is so great, so vast, I'm not going to open the letter. I'm not, I'm not going to pay attention to what's in there. Would she appreciate that or he appreciate that? So God has given us his self-revelation. We owe it to what God has given to us to pay close attention to what he has told us of himself and take it seriously. So there's a balance between recognizing a reality that's beyond us and accepting the reality given to us that we are to understand. Um, if Christ did not clearly die for each one of us to save us to go to heaven, then why did the scriptures so clearly say so in Hebrews 2.9? And I quote, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I, I think this text actually fits with limited atonement. I, you know, it's a very tough issue, but I think as we read on, it speaks of the sons that God has promised to bring to glory. And in verse 16, he speaks of the offspring or seed of Abraham. Not the seed of Adam, but the seed of Abraham. So I actually think if we look at the context more carefully, this verse is not speaking of all without exception, but all without distinction. A tough issue, certainly. Very uh, practical question for either of you. I don't ask this divisively at all. Um, I have unsaved family members and friends, and so when I'm praying for them, I try to pray verses in the Bible, and, and I have a really hard time knowing how to pray for them from an Arminian perspective. If you pray, for example, the new covenant promises, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. I will write my law within them and on their heart. I will write it. I will be their God. And then in 2 Timothy he says, um, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to knowledge of the truth 
and I say, God, grant my brother repentance that he might come to knowledge of the truth. Write your law on his heart. How do I pray that and say, write, but don't, don't go too far in compromising their freedom? How do I pray the, as an Arminian? Do you all have the question? Go ahead. Well, I'm right with you. Um, there are numbers of dear friends of mine who are unsaved that I pray for. Uh, what, I pr what I pray for is that the Holy Spirit will indeed visit them with His grace, that the Holy Spirit will bring the kind of conviction and illumination that is necessary for them to be able to believe. I don't subscribe to the notion that God gives faith. I don't find that in Scripture. I don't think Ephesians 2.8 says that. I don't think that other spots that are typically quoted actually say that God makes people believe or causes them to believe. And so what I pray for is that God's Spirit will do what we claim prevenient grace promises. And that is that God will visit these dear ones for whom we're praying, and he will open a way for them to say yes to the gospel. Yeah, I, I, I agree with the tenor of the question. God, God grants repentance. That's what the text says. So he does give it. He does cause it. So we, in, the, in the Arminian view, I don't really know what there's to pray for. God's already given prevenient grace to everybody. It's already there. We don't have to pray for that. It's a, it's a given. But what I pray as a Calvinist, Lord, don't just sort of influence them. Don't sort of work on them, but don't violate their will. I pray, save them. Save them. Overcome their resistance. Open their blind eyes, as you open the eyes of Lydia, and help them to see. Save them by your miraculous grace. If predestination, yeah, if predestination is true, then how do you answer, and I did hear you say evangelism was important to you, how do you answer Matthew 28 at the end, the Great Commission, where it says, and I quote, then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's to Christ. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. It doesn't say a predestined. It says all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of age. And it doesn't say predestination, it says all nations. How do you answer that as a Calvinist? As a Calvinist, we, we, we do believe that God uses the witness of people, whether it's in this local community or across in another nation of the world, all the nations of the world over which Christ has authority. He uses the witness of people as the necessary means by which people hear the gospel and are saved. Now, think, for example, of John 10, 16. John 10, the good shepherd, Jesus is describing himself. He says in verse 16, the most remarkable thing. He says, I have other sheep. Now, stop right there. I have, they're already mine. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. They must hear my voice, and then they will become one flock with one shepherd. So when we go out to witness, we go out proclaiming what we believe is spirit-induced, the word of Christ proclaimed, that when the elect hear his voice, they will come. It, it grants to people who, I mean, the modern missions movement, 
was begun by Calvinists, William Carey, Adoniram Judson. I mean, these were people who believed with all of their hearts that God had people in every nation of the world, every people group who were his. They needed to hear the gospel so they could hear the voice of the shepherd and come and be saved. I would actually like to, to, uh, to commend not only our Calvinist brothers here, but the Calvinist movement for their tremendous missionary enthusiasm. Uh, it is a mistake to conclude that because predestination is true or preached, that there is no zeal for evangelism. And I just want to affirm them, and indeed what they speak of the missionary movement is absolutely true. Uh, that's what I'll say uh, to that. I'll let Jerry, if you want, to respond. <laughs> Well, I, uh, my, only, my only question would be this. Given God's determination of all things, I would like to know why he doesn't deter more missionaries uh, to, uh, to reach these lost people and why he has chosen so often to leave people unreached, given that he determines means as well as ends. Okay, a question for Dr. Walls and Dr. Donjel. Yeah, um, I really wish I had more than 30 seconds to establish my question a little better, but basically... Um, it's evident that man is a fallen creature and incapable of doing anything good. So the Arminians seem to combat this point with prevenient grace, stating that, well, God gives every creature a chance to, to become saved. Is that a correct understanding of that? Well, if so, then how is grace grace? How is prevenient grace grace when grace, by definition, is getting what we don't deserve? If prevenient grace is true, then every person, by just simply being human, would deserve grace, which defies its definition. No. I have no claim that human beings, any human being, deserves any grace. Uh, the Bible teaches God himself has declared that he loves all persons and wants the world to be saved. So it's based on God's own will and desire, uh, not upon any deserving on our part at all. And furthermore, I think that the description of uh, faith that we find, especially in the first few verses of chapter 4 in Romans, where we read of Abraham believing in God, believing and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, of course coming from uh, Genesis, uh, that this uh, clearly here says that faith doesn't mean that God uh, responds by paying him off in righteousness. Faith has no uh, monetary value, it establish, establishes nothing moral. It doesn't have any leverage over God at all. Faith by its nature is utterly weak. We could believe all we wanted to all day long, and if there were no God, or if God did not wish to respond to faith, we would be as dead and lost as ever. So faith by its nature, as the scripture teaches, doesn't create any leverage at all or credibility for us for God. I, I, I don't agree that provenient grace is necessarily not grace. I don't agree with that. But the point I would make is this. I quote Millard Erickson here. Provenient grace is a, a wonderful and attractive doctrine. But I agree with Millard Erickson when he says, unfortunately, it's nowhere taught in the scriptures. So that's my problem with provenient grace. I don't think it can be scripturally validated. If provenient grace is true, if this is the grace by which we are saved, then we have to face the fact that the ultimate reason anyone is saved and lost is not owing to what God does. It's owing to what you do and I do. So how can we say there is no boasting before God 
when it is my will ultimately. Now granted, it's a will that's freed up, a will that was depraved and couldn't have come otherwise, but now because of grace is freed up, but I choose, and I could say no. Well, I did a good thing then, didn't I, when I believed in Christ? You did a bad thing if you don't believe in Christ. So there is something attaching, owing to what we do ultimately before God. Dr. Schreiner, you made the comment, and I, I hope I got this word for word. I was, I was writing fast. Uh, ultimately, God's will will be accomplished, which is a statement I think every Orthodox Christian would affirm, at least on the surface, because uh, prophecy in the Bible affirms that God's will will ultimate, ultimately be accomplished. But my understanding of the Calvinist perspective, as presented tonight, is that part of God's ultimate will is whether or not each and every individual purpose shall be saved by grace through Christ. Now, if, it's, if that's what God's ultimate will entails, and therefore God predestines each and every individual one of us, uh, how does that stack up with the fact that uh, Scripture says in the Gospels, Jesus said, it is not the will of the Father that any should perish. There was the verse we talked about in Timothy that was discussed in Timothy tonight, that God desires all flesh to come to him. If God's will will be done, and God desires all people to come to him. And God's will being done means God's will for each and every one of us, not just the earth in general. How can there be any hell? And yet the Bible clearly teaches damnation. Okay. So I was having a hard and, time with that. Yeah. Uh, that, that is an excellent and outstanding question. And it's a difficult question for Calvinists. But I would also argue that Arminians are faced with the same problem in this sense. All of us agree that there is complexity in the will of God in this sense. Arminians argue it is God's will that all be saved. But they also argue that God has a will that only those who believe in Jesus will be saved. So there are two levels to God's will, even in the Arminian scheme. The Calvinist argues similarly. God's will is complex. God is a complex being. There is a sense in which God determines only some will be saved. But it is also true, there is another sense in which God desires all to be saved. Simply because God wills or decrees that only some will be saved ultimately, simply because that's true, it doesn't cancel out the other truth that God desires all to be saved, looked at individually within its own scope. So we have to acknowledge, I, I really agreed with what Joe was saying, our, our God is complex. His being is beyond our comprehension, ultimately. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Yes, there are differences between God's and God's will. And yes, ultimately, I would argue that to correlate these finally is a mysterious proposition for us. It's not at all parallel for this reason. Again, I reiterate, God could determine all persons freely to choose heaven and salvation. Uh, the, the, the requirement of faith is not arbitrary. It's the very nature of the relationship. It is, again, trust in God, uh, opening up our hearts to Him. That's what the relationship is. It's not an arbitrary requirement. It's the very nature of the relationship. Let me read a passage as I begin this last five minutes from Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did this to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not from among Jews only, 
but also from among the Gentiles. I believe the Bible teaches, Dr. Schreiner believes the Bible teaches, that God unconditionally elects only some to be saved. He could choose all. This is one of the most staggering implications of the Calvinist view. Jerry is absolutely right to make this point. And, and to, try to try, try to say, can you accept this notion of a God who creates a world in which he intentionally creates people for reprobation? Any way you slice it, this is what it comes down to. He creates for heaven and hell from the very beginning. Well, and, and can you say that God truly loves those whom he passes over and chooses not to save? I think you genuinely can. And I want to close with an illustration to show how I think you can make sense of this. This is a true story as I understand it. What, what it illustrates is how there can be genuine love and yet choose not to save people whom you could save, people whom you genuinely love. In World War II, Winston Churchill had this tremendous intelligence device that was developed by British scientists along with help from others from the continent. And this device, I actually have seen one, it looks sort of like a typewriter, and they would decode Hitler's messages that he would send around to his frontline troops and, uh, uh, and call Churchill on the phone and give to him what Hitler's own plans were. This was called the Enigma. Perhaps some of you have heard about this device. Well, and, and of course, German subs and, and, and ger German uh, uh, military had these decoding devices all over the place. But now in Britain, they, had, they made their own. And so they were intercepting uh, Hitler's messages to his frontline troops. Well, one day, Churchill picked up the phone, and the folks who decoded the message told him this. In three days, Hitler is sending over a squadron of bombers and he's going to bomb the city of Coventry which is north of London and and so Churchill put down the phone and he thought to himself well, I'm going to call the mayor of Coventry let him know that these bombers are coming evacuate the city to save my people but you know what he never made that call he never informed the mayor or the people of Coventry of this bombing that was going to take place in three days three days later just as he knew, the bombers came over, crossed the English Channel, bombed the city of Coventry. Tremendous devastation. Many, many people died in this event. In fact, the mayor of Coventry called Churchill. I have seen a PBS special with film footage of Churchill walking the streets of Coventry, rubble all over the ground, bodies still laying dead on the ground. And, there, and Churchill is commiserating with the people over the death of these uh, these British citizens. Now, here's the question. Why in the world did Churchill not save these people whom he could have saved? Would it be fair to say of Churchill, oh, he didn't love them. He loved the other people of England that he tried to save, but he didn't love them. Would that be a fair thing to say to Churchill? No, I tell you, that would be a cruel thing to say to Churchill. Why? Because the decision he made was one that was born out of a realization there is a higher purpose, a higher goal, which only can be accomplished if these people are not saved. Now, why is that? Why was that for Churchill? Well, it's very simple. That if these bombers had come over, you know, back in those days, they didn't shoot missiles from miles away. If these bombers had come over, sighted down, seen that the city was evacuated, guess what they would have concluded? 
they got the message. They must have been able to decode the message. They must have a decoding device. And Churchill judged that the war effort was of greater value than the salvation of these people of Coventry. I submit to you that it is reasonable to think that God is both loving of all people and selective in his love and saving grace towards some if in fact he has greater purposes that can only be accomplished by designing the world and carrying out his purposes this way. What is that greater purpose? Well, for Churchill, that was the war effort. For God, it is his glory, as Romans 9 testifies. May God be honored. Jerry and I are going to split our time, and because Jerry is the more dramatic one, I'll let him have the second run of it. I only have two things to say in response to uh, my friend Bruce here. Uh, first of all, is I, I continue to urge him and others to read beyond Romans 9. Romans 9 and 10 and 11 form a cohesive argument that need to be understood together. The second point I would make is I'd recommend that Bruce not use this illustration anymore because it works against him. Because what it suggests is that Churchill is like God. Churchill is not like God. Churchill could not have prevented the knowledge of the enigma to be known. God could have prevented it. There's not an analogy between these two, and I'd recommend he think of another analogy to use. Thank you. Um, I, I would just reiterate that same thing. I mean, the whole force of the analogy is that Churchill, in order to save some, had to let others be lost. Is God under that kind of necessity? Does he have to have some people lost? And if he does, what kind of God is it that would have to do this to be ultimately glorified? That's the question. I mean, this is really it. I, I, asked, I said at the very beginning, the question here between us is, what is God's character? What is the nature of God's character? What kind of God would have a character that would require eternal damnation for him to be eternally glorified? That's the question. Now, uh, something was said earlier, uh, I also want to respond to that this statement that God doesn't owe us anything sounds very pious, but this strikes me as very much like a mother saying, I don't owe this child that I have given birth to anything. Now, a mother doesn't have to choose to have a baby, but if she chooses to have a baby, she's under certain obligations of love to care for that baby. God doesn't have to create a world. He doesn't have to create beings who care, who feel intensely, who have emotions and desires and the like. He doesn't have to create beings like that, but if he chooses to create beings like that, given his essential nature of perfect love, he cannot but do everything he can to promote their well-being any more than a mother could promote the well-being of her child. It's not a matter of what God owes us. It's a matter of his eternal nature of perfect love who willingly, gladly does this. And again, look at the cross and say, is the God you see revealed on the cross a God who needs to glorify himself by damning people eternally, people he could just as easily save with their freedom intact?